Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome, everyone. This is the uh, first program of our 2023-2024 season for Humanities West. I'd like to welcome everybody to the Commonwealth Club again as well. Tonight, we're going to do a, a something special, which is a program that was organized by one of the members of our board of directors, Jolene. You want to come on up? We made it possible for anybody to volunteer at this point and organize a program, and Jolene was the first to the post. So we have uh, her speakers that she lined up. Uh, as, as she mentioned, we have Amy Branham Armiento here in person. She's a professor of English at Frostburg State University. She's the past president of the Poe Studies Association, and she's the co-editor of the book Poe and Women, Recognition and Revision, which six people won awards for tonight. And... And uh, we're going to start with Mark Dewidziak, uh, who is uh, still in Ohio, but he's going to be live streaming in here in a few seconds. He's a former television, film, and theater critic for the Akron Beacon Journal and the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and he's the author of the book A Mystery of Mysteries, The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. Um, I, should, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Roderick Usher, and I'm here to be really gloomy. <laughs> Oh, we're going to have a little bit of fun with Edgar Allan Poe. So, uh, Mark, there you are. Hello. Welcome to Humanities West, and uh, go right ahead. Um, well, thank you for uh, having me virtually. Let me start with a question I, I often get uh, in the question and answer. So I, I've, I've learned something in doing Poe Talks, which is uh, start here, because everything always seems to start in reverse with Edgar Allan Poe. So I'm going to start with a question I usually get at the end, which is how did you come to write this book about Edgar Allan Poe. And I have to first uh, cop to the, uh, the fact that it was not my idea to write this book. Um, if I am associated with any American author, it is, can you tell, Mark Twain. Um, I have been playing Mark Twain on stage for now 45 years. Um, I started when I was 22, so if you want to do the math, you can figure out how old I am. But I have been playing Mark Twain uh, every year since I was 22 years old with less makeup uh, every year. Uh, the makeup process has gotten considerably shorter in recent years. We've reached to the point where it's kind of grab the white suit, pick up the cigar, and go. Um, in fact, when I was 22, it took me two hours to look like this. Um, and I did. I, when I was finished with the makeup, I was showing myself exactly what I was going to look like when I was 67 years old. It was, uh, you know, makeup by prophecy is what it was. But five of my books are about Mark Twain. And uh, I've done a considerable amount of study and portraying of Twain. But I had done a book on the Twilight Zone for St. Martin's Press, which was published in 2017. And when you have a book that does well enough for a publisher, you have a clause in your contract, which uh, is called the option clause. It gives the publisher the option on your next book. It doesn't mean they have to publish it. It just means you have to offer it to them. So the Twilight Zone book had done well enough to have the discussion about what the next book should be. Now, I have no shortage of ego, which you will probably discover tonight, but it, I, I, I do not have that much hubris to say I should be the person 
to write the next biography of Edgar Allan Poe. I don't, I, I have carried Poe throughout my entire life. He has been a writer. Uh, I, uh, Poe and Twain are the two that I have carried through my, my whole life, but I would have never positioned myself for that. And sometimes it takes somebody else to point out the obvious. And that's exactly what happened with this book. I was uh, having a conversation with an editor at St. Martin's. This was in the fall of 2019. And we were trying to sort of figure out what the next book was going to be. So I hit this guy with my best, can't miss, super slick, right, going to be right down the middle idea. And the problem was it missed. It missed badly. He had no interest at all in my can't miss idea. So he countered with an idea and I didn't like his idea. So I gave him my second best idea. and He didn't like that either. So he countered with an idea and we went back and forth like this until we kind of realized we'd better table this conversation for another day. And as we were getting off the phone, he said, what about... Edgar Allan Poe. And I about dropped the phone. And I said, well, what about him? And he said, well, it seems like he checks a lot of your boxes. Now, here it comes. Here's the somebody else has to point out the obvious. And I said, well, how do you figure that? He said, well, Poe is the father of the modern horror story. You have written books about landmark horror topics like Dracula and the Night Stalker. Poe is the father of the modern detective story. You've written a book about a landmark detective character with your Columbo book. Poe was a major American 19th century author. You have written about a major 19th century author with Mark Twain. Poe is a critic most of his life. You were a critic most of your life. How does this not check all of your boxes? And again, it took somebody else to point out the obvious. But then it became a question of exactly what kind of a book he wanted. And it became very quickly clear he wanted the type of book that, well, it's a, it's a type of book that seems to arrive with depressing regularity on the noon stage every two years. You know, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about as soon as I say it. He wanted the type of book that definitively solves the mystery of who Jack the Ripper was. Now, we seem to get that book every two years. I think we're up to about 17 definitive answers as to who Jack the Ripper was. He wanted that type of book to claim to solve the mystery of Edgar Allan Poe's death. And when that became clear, I said to him, if that's the book you want, my advice to you is to find yourself another lunatic because this one's driving away. I said, let me explain to you why that book cannot be written. A, no death certificate. B, no autopsy. And even if there had been an autopsy, it would have been worthless. It would have been worthless because the state of the autopsy in 1849, the year Poe dies, is primitive. 
the, the, the autopsy does not enter the modern age until the Civil War. The Civil War is the defining moment for autopsy because we got very good at cutting up bodies and knowing what to look for during the Civil War, before the Civil War. And if there had been an autopsy conducted on Poe, they wouldn't have known what they were looking for. They wouldn't have known what they were doing. And it would have been conducted with the equivalent of machetes and butcher knives. So no death certificate, no autopsy, no surviving soft tissue that can be subjected to modern forensics. And finally, most damning of all, no reliable witnesses. The witnesses that exist to pose death not only contradict each other, they contradict themselves, muddying the record beyond any semblance of reliability. The attending physician, John Moran, leaves behind three, count them three, accounts of Poe's death, wildly different in tone and substance and detail. Moran goes so far as to change the time of death. He goes so far as to change Poe's last words. I can't even begin to imagine what a lawyer would do to John Moran if they had him on the stand. So John Moran, the one person we need to be consistently reliable and accurate in his observations of Poe in his death, is none of those things. So therefore, it's a cold case, and it's going to remain a cold case. So I said to this editor, I won't write you that book, but I'll tell you the book I will write. I will write an examination of Edgar Allan Poe's life using the mystery of his death as the framing device the filter through which we will examine his life, because I am much more interested in how Edgar Allan Poe lived than how he might have died, as intriguing as that is. And he liked that idea, and he went for that idea. So that's how the book came about. But along the way, one of the major things that I wanted to do with the book, and what I want to do tonight, is to smash the misconceptions people have about Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, he simply was not the man or the writer that you think he is. So in order to make this work, the main title of the book is A Mystery of Mysteries. It comes from a poem that Poe wrote when he was very young called Spirits of the Dead. And uh, I've grown to love this poem. My wife and I perform this every time we perform our two-person Poe show. We always close the show with Spirits of the Dead. And uh, my wife has become so enamored of this poem, she keeps saying, you can have this read at my funeral. Um, and the last uh, lines of Spirits of the Dead are, The breeze, the breath of God is still, And the mist upon the hill, shadowy, shadowy yet unbroken is a symbol and a token, how it hangs upon the trees, a mystery of mysteries. And there it is. He gave, he, gave, he gave me the main title of the book, A Mystery of Mysteries. But the subtitle of the book is reversed. 
from what you normally expect. The subtitle is The Death and Life of Edgar Allan Poe. And why is it reversed? Well, for several reasons. One reason is when you discuss the life of, of a writer or an artist of any kind, you generally follow the accepted form of biography, and that means you start at the beginning. You start in the logical place where biography should start when somebody is born. That's exactly the point where you expect a biography to start. And yet every discussion of Edgar Allan Poe seems to start with the end. It seems to start with his death. We're so fascinated by that death that it's become the starting point. So that's one reason I reversed it. Another reason I reversed it, among others, is that although we know very, very little about, uh, for certain sure, about how Poe died, we're up to about 25 theories uh, as to how Poe died. Although we know very little, one thing we know for absolute certain sure is that he stopped drawing breath on October 7th, 1849, at Washington Hospital in Baltimore. That's one of the things we know for certain sure. And we also know that the next day, October 8th, he was buried in a very small Presbyterian cemetery in Baltimore in a cold, breezy, rainy, miserable, overcast day at a service attended by very few people. And then... The next day, October 9th, 1849, he was buried again, this time by somebody he thought was a friend. This time it was by somebody he trusted so much, he made this guy his literary executor. And it's a guy who's going to become one of the great villains of literary history Rufus Griswold. Now, isn't that a great name for a literary villain? It almost sounds like it comes right out of a Victorian melodrama. And the villain, Rufus Griswold, almost seems like he should be twirling his mustache. Ah, Rufus Griswold, about to dispossess the widow and orphans. Well, he does something which is just about as scurrilous as that. Edgar Allan Poe, who trusted him and thought he was a friend, did not know that Rufus Griswold had been nursing grudges for many years and had worked up quite a hatred of Edgar Allan Poe. And he does not wait until the body is cold. He launches his attack in the New York Tribune with an obituary that starts, Edgar Allan Poe is dead. He died in Baltimore the day before yesterday. This announcement will startle many, but few will be grieved by it. And it went downhill from there. And he wasn't done. He continues to write about Poe, portraying him as immoral, dishonorable, arrogant, unbalanced, envious, and conceited. He does harm to Poe's reputation, which has not been undone to this very day. And this is where the misconceptions about Poe really start. So now Poe gets buried under a mountain of misconceptions. Is there blowback to Griswold? Yes, 
There is blowback to Gris Griswold. Some of it comes from Poe's friends. Yes, he had friends, even though Griswold wanted people to think that Poe was friendless. But some of the major blowback comes from da -dun -da -dun, the French, the French led by Baudelaire, who idolized Poe. And Baudelaire goes after Griswold. Oh, boy, does he go after Griswold. He famously asks in an essay, thinking about how Griswold has treated the dead Poe, are there not ordinances in the United States which prevent dogs from running loose in your cemeteries? Ooh, he compares Griswold to a cur. And another time he calls Griswold a pedagogic vampire. But the French, in trying to rescue Edgar Allan Poe, and they believe he's a genius, replace one stereotype with another. Because it kind of suited their idea of Poe to think he was touched with a little bit of insanity, a little madness. And it was a romantic view of Poe. And this is going to just replace one stereotype with another because now people are now being encouraged to confuse Poe with his unreliable, unbalanced narrators. Poe is the guy in the telltale heart who is contemplating murder and killing the old man with the pale blue eye. Poe is the guy in the raven talking to the bird. Poe is the guy in the cask of Amontillado plotting revenge and luring somebody to his death. This becomes so constant that it's taught. And when I was in high school in the 1970s, I was taught that this is where these stories came from. And what this does is it completely undercuts Poe as an artist. Poe did not write these stories because he was touched with madness. He could portray madness because he was in total control of his craft. So the French are trying to do a nice thing, but they create another. And they bury him yet again under another misconception. Then in 1875, they buried him again. Because at this point, Baltimore has gotten the idea that this Poe may have been somebody worth paying attention to. And they want to put up a memorial to him. But where he was buried in the cemetery was in the back. And there wasn't much room there. So they dug him up, they exhumed the body, and they buried him again. This guy just keeps getting buried. And this time they bury him in the front of the cemetery and put up a very nice monument over him. And then here comes the 20th century. And the pop culture turns Poe into our grandfather of goth. His era Stephen King, if you will. The sultan of spookiness, the, the titan of terror. and. Once again, now he becomes a caricature, a grotesque caricature of who he actually was. So all of this, you just keep seeing this guy getting buried and buried and buried. Now, some of you have read Edgar Allan Poe. And if you know anything about Edgar Allan Poe and you know anything about his stories, there is one absolute fact Nothing stays buried in an Edgar Allan Poe short story. And that is the other reason I reversed the subtitle. Because even though 
This guy keeps getting buried. Edgar Allan Poe is going to emerge from the grave, triumphant, to be the best read, most recognized American writer, not only in his own country, but around the world. He is going to outlive, outlast, and outshine all of those writers who are going to outlast him. That's why the death and life of Edgar Allan Poe, because he has this amazing afterlife. But the death is part of the reason we remember him. And there's a good reason for that. Poe's death is the greatest literary stage exit in history. There are three great literary stage exits, to my mind. The first is Moliere. Moliere, a French playwright and actor. Moliere is dying as they are premiering his last play. He is dying of tuberculosis. He's in the play. And he's dying. He's trying to get through the performance. He collapses on stage. They drag him into the wings. They revive him and they push him back out on stage. He finishes the play, goes home, and dies. That is a great literary stage exit for a writer who is also a playwright and an actor. Second, there's Mark Twain. Mark Twain, who is born November 30th, 1835, with Halley's Comet visible in the night sky. And a year before his own death in 1910, Mark Twain correctly predicts that he will die when the comet comes back in 1910. And he pulls it off. He, this is a called shot. This is Babe Ruth calling the home run. He actually lives, is born and dies with the comet in the night sky, which is something which would not be out of place in Greek mythology. And that's pretty good. But in some ways, Edgar Allan Poe outdoes them all because Edgar Allan Poe dies under circumstances which actually reflect his two greatest literary achievements. First off, the father of the modern detective story leaves us with a mystery. Not just a mystery, but a double-barreled mystery because he leaves us with the mystery of what killed him. And we're no closer to the, a definitive answer on that than we were than the day he died in 1849. But then there's the mystery of the missing days, because Poe is in Richmond in the summer of 1849. He boards a steamer heading to Baltimore on September 26th, and the moment his foot hits the deck of that steamer, a curtain comes down. And he is shielded from our view until October 3rd, when he is found on the streets of Baltimore in front of a polling place because it was an election day, wearing clothes which were not his own and insensible. And no witness has ever come forward to say so much as, oh, I had a conversation with him at the railing of the steamer or I passed him on the streets in Baltimore. Nothing. Nothing. These days are completely shielded from our view. So Poe leaves us with 
a double-barreled mystery, the missing days and what killed him. And then the father of the modern horror story dies under circumstances which would not be out of place in one of his own tales of terror. He dies lingering. He is raving for some of the time. It is an awful, terrible death, which seems very reflective of several of his stories. This is better. This is, this is, nobody has ever done this. It's almost as if a press agent or a PR guy had taken him aside at one point and said, you know, Eddie, the best thing that you could do to, to, for, for your, is to die under circumstances which would reflect the things you're going to be best known for. And that is amazing. So it's no, no wonder we start with the death. No wonder that we go there. It's 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 incredibly intriguing, in, and it so suits Poe's life. So, I have some images I'd like to share with you tonight, um, and they should be appearing here in just a second. Aha, there is it, the, and there you can see a mystery of mysteries, the death and life of Edgar Allan Poe. Now, fame has been a bit of a double-edged sword for Mr. Poe. On the one hand, a small group of stories and poems have completely defined him and completely shaped our image of him. And one of the things that people are very, very surprised to learn about Edgar Allan Poe, when I was writing this book, and, and people would ask me, well, what, what are you working on right now? And I would tell them, I'm working on a biography of Edgar Allan Poe. There were certain people who would, they'd get almost this beatific look on their face. And they would look at me and they'd say something like this. Oh, Edgar Allan Poe. I love Edgar Allan Poe. And then here it came. My lips could about move with them with what they were going to say next. I've read everything he's written. And in my mind, I was thinking, no, you haven't. You haven't even scratched the surface. You got one of those volumes that says the complete tales and poems of Edgar Allan Poe, and you think you have read everything he's written. When they collected Poe's works in the early 1900s, the first really good definitive collection of his works, it spanned 17 volumes. Let me say that again, 17 volumes, and that much of it is horror and mystery. And yet, it's that little bit that has defined him. So, one of the th misconceptions about Poe is that he was primarily a horror writer, or he was primarily a mystery writer. In Poe's lifetime, he wasn't best known as a writer of short stories. He was not best known as a poet. He was best known as a literary critic. And he was so exacting as a literary critic that his nickname became the Tomahawk Man. He made a lot of enemies, and he was a very good critic. He really was superb. But he was known first as a literary critic, secondarily as a poet, and then third as the author of short stories. Our century has reversed that order. 
We know him first as a short story writer, then as a poet. And if you know it at all, critic. But that doesn't even begin. Would you be surprised if I told you that Poe wrote as much humor as he did horror? We just don't read the humor today. But that's another one of the misconceptions. So this has been a double-edged sword for Fe he these these small group of stories have kept him alive and have kept him going. And thank goodness. And yet they have reinforced that stereotype that I was talking about. He's also one of the most recognized of American writers. I mean, physically recognized. And let's go to the second one. Here it is. If I said Edgar Allan Poe, you got an image. And this was probably close to the image you got. And that's amazing. Just stop and think about that for a second. Can the average American recognize Herman Melville? Can the average American even pick Herman Melville out of a police lineup? Would they be able to quote passages from Emerson and Thoreau? And yet we not only can recognize that face, but we also recognize the stories. We recognize the Raven. You don't have to stop and explain the Raven to people. You don't have to explain the telltale heart to people. Why is that? And that's because two things have worked together to make sure that Poe is our renewable literary energy source. He just keeps getting reintroduced. One of them is the pop culture, which continually turns to those small group of stories. And the second is the public school system. Hooray for the public school system because they keep reintroducing Edgar Allan Poe. Seventh grade, seventh grade, everybody gets Poe. My father in the depths of the depression in the 1930s got Edgar Allan Poe in the seventh grade. And I got Poe in the seventh. And you're gonna keep getting him. You're gonna get him seventh, eighth, ninth, right on through college. While other writers have dropped out of curriculum, Poe stays there. And what a great age to get Edgar Allan Poe. Seventh grade. Seventh grade, when almost nobody likes to read. Reading is just a bloody chore when you're in the seventh grade. And then all of a sudden, we give you Edgar Allan Poe. And what's Poe doing? Oh, he's he's dismembering corpses he's locking people up in torture chambers he's entombing them in catacombs and the amazing thing is nobody raises an eyebrow about this it's, it's we we do this every every time every generation we do this and we give can you imagine the outcry if these were contemporary stories written by a, a contemporary author doing the same things but my father wasn't upset when I got these stories in the seventh grade. He was pleased because he loved the stories. So grandparents got Poe. Parents get Poe. Children get Poe. Their children are going to get Poe. And that's one of the, the amazing things about Poe. It is right there in our consciousness, in our DNA. So you think to yourself, okay, if I pass Poe on the street, I'd recognize him. Well, if you pass this guy on the street in New York in, say, 1849, maybe you would recognize him. But would you recognize this guy? 
That, folks, is Edgar Allan Poe. And that is probably how he looked for most of his adult life. He didn't even grow the mustache until about the last couple years of his life. And for most of this time, he was healthy. He wasn't the stereotype of what we think Edgar Allan Poe was. So what is the stereotype? Let's see if this sounds familiar to you. Let's see if this sounds close to what you think of Edgar Allan Poe. Sickly. Pale. Stoop-shouldered. Um, sitting up in an attic somewhere. Surrounded by cobwebs. A raven perched on his shoulder as he writes. A quill pen in his hand. A red-eyed black cat prowling amongst the dust as he works on parchment, spinning out his tales of terror and fever dreams fueled by alcohol and maybe drugs. Yes? Does that sound remotely familiar? None of that's true. None of that is Edgar Allan Poe. He walked with his shoulders back. He had a military gait. He'd been a soldier. He was a good soldier. He was such a good soldier, he was promoted very quickly to the highest rank he could achieve, which was sergeant. And he never lost that bearing, that military bearing. He walked everywhere. He was athletic. As a youth, he swam the James River outside of Richmond against the current on a blisteringly hot day and became a local champion for doing it. He was a good boxer. He could win any jumping or leaping contest. None of that fits the stereotype. But that's who Edgar Allan Poe was. And that's probably the guy who wrote all those stories and poems that we all love so much. Not the guy we started with. Okay, let's go to the next image. This, get ready to hiss. Go ahead and hiss if you wish. That's Rufus Griswold. That's the guy. That's what he looked like. Isn't he a cheerful looking fellow? All right, that's enough of Griswold. Let's go to the next slide. This is an example of what, the, what happened. This is an illustration from William Wilson, one of Poe's short stories. And look at what's happening. They're actually drawing the character to look like Poe, encouraging you to confuse him with his own characters, right? But let's take a look at the photograph because the photographic record of Edgar Allan Poe also has a hand in fostering the misconception. And that's because most of the images of Edgar Allan Poe that we have come from the last two years of his life. That's when the majority, there's only six or seven known photographs of Poe, what are called daguerreotypes. And almost all of them come from the last two years when Poe is getting sick and he's looking sick. And daguerreotypes, are, they're, they're terrible because to have your, 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 your portrait made as a daguerreotype, you went into a studio and you sat in a very uncomfortable chair. The chair had braces all around it, which would hold you in position because the lens had to stay open for a long time and you couldn't move or else there would be a blur and you were encouraged not to guess what smile because if you smiled, it's hard to hold a smile for any length of time. So you were encouraged to look serious. 
So Poe always looks serious. Everybody looks serious. You look at daguerreotypes of presidents, statesmen, all the people who had their images taken in the 1840s and 50s. They all look constipated, all of them, all the way through. So Poe just never lived until the era of what we call the Kodak, the candid camera where you would have images of your, your friends and neighbors just doing everyday things. If he had, we'd have pictures of Poe laughing. We'd have pictures of Poe playing duets with his wife. We would have pictures of Poe leaping in, in the front yard and splitting his pants and laughing himself silly over it. And how would that change our image of Edgar Allan Poe if you knew that? All right. But let's take a look at the photographic record. Here we go. This is the first known image of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, it is from 1840, it's 1843. It's a daguerreotype. He hated this, this image, and you can see why. He looks like a real goomer in this picture. The sideburns are a little outrageous. It's a very unflattering picture of him and probably not a very good representation of what he looked like. But remember, he only lives to be 40. This is 1843. He's going to die in 1849. So all of our images of Poe come from 1843 to 1849. Let's see what happens in those six years. Next picture. This is probably a much better representation of what Poe looked like about the same time. This is an 1844 watercolor of Poe and considered a very good likeness. Next image. This is another 1844 image. This is a drawing of Poe. And once again, probably fairly representative of the guy who actually wrote those stories. Next one. This is the one you've just seen. This is 1846 watercolor and considered perhaps the best likeness of what Poe actually looked like. Next image is 1847. This was taken a few months after his wife Virginia's death. Um, it's the only one where there's even a hint of a smile. He's a little devil may care suggestion of a grin here. Uh, among Poe scholars, this sometimes is... is jokingly referred to as the David Niven picture because he does look pretty dashing, but he still looks pretty healthy at this point. And remember, this is 1847. He's only got two more years to live, but let's look at what happens in the last two years, right? 1847, next image, 1848. He's starting to look puffy. He's starting to look drawn. There's bags are, are, are starting to appear under his eyes. That's 1848. Now in the next image, later in 1848. Very familiar image, but look what's happening to Poe. Let's go to the next image. This is later still. This is early 1849. And something's very wrong with Edgar Allan Poe. And next image. This was the last known image of Edgar Allan Poe taken three weeks before his death. So you can see, you can actually see in the photographic record that something was going very, very wrong with Edgar Allen's Poe's life and his health, and it is going off the charts. So another reason I wanted to write this book, and we can uh, leave the images now behind. So another reason I wanted to do this book was because of 
all of those misconceptions we were talking about, all the myths and misconceptions that built up around Poe. And one of them was that he was this incredibly melancholy, serious guy. Now, in the 43 years I spent as a journalist covering television and, and, and movies, I had the great privilege to interview almost every leading practitioner in the field of horror. Stephen King, Anne Rice, Clive Barker, Robert Block, the author of Psycho, Ray Bradbury, directors like Wes Craven and John Carpenter, actors like Vincent Price and Robert England. And there was something I noticed about all of them. Each and every one of them had a great sense of humor. They were very, very funny people. And when I mentioned this to Stephen King, who I interviewed for the book, King said, well, of course, of course, you have to have a sense of humor to do this. If you did not have a sense of humor and you wrote horror, you'd go crazy. Humor is what keeps you grounded. Humor is what keeps you sane. And it's a flip sides of the same coin. Humor and horror are twins. They're the two metaphoric devices we use to approach and attack uncomfortable subjects, painful subjects, and give them scope and give them meaning. And they're even twins. They look like twins. Humor, horror, two, two syllable words starting with H, ending in R. But my, I came to the inescapable conclusion that if all of these people had this great sense of humor, then Poe must have had a great sense of humor. And it turns out he did. We don't think he wrote a lot of hoaxes, satires, sketches, and there's humor in the horror stories. If you're willing to look, Cask of Amontillado, Poe actually lets you in on the joke and gives you these wonderful moments of sly humor. My wife and I performed the Cask of Amontillado, and we just did it last night. And every single time when the story of, of, of Montresor, who lures Fortunato to his death because he's insulted him, and you get to this point where he's luring him closer and closer to walling him up in the catacombs, and Fortunato has a cough, and he keeps coughing, and Montresor keeps saying, let's go back. Your health is precious. I cannot be responsible. Let's go back. And finally, Fortunato says, enough. It is a mere nothing. I shall not die of a cough. And Montresor says one word, true. And that's a laugh line, folks. And Poe is letting you in on it. So. He's funny in his literary criticism. He's funny in the horror stories. And he wrote a great deal of, of and he was funny in, his, in, in, in everyday life. He had a great sense of humor. He also was a genius. And I'm going to wrap it up now because I don't want to abuse my time. And I certainly want to leave enough time for Amy to uh, re revisit some of this and do chart out her territory. But I do want to leave with one other idea here, and that is Poe did feel like an outsider often, and he did feel like a loner, and a lot of that has to do with the way he grew up and the losses he had. He lost his mother when he was not yet three years old. He loses a lot of people in his life, 
and his life is defined by loss. And it's it's amazing that he he keeps going. But one thing that I'm always struck by is he was a genius. And he knew it. Um, when he finished The Raven, he, we, he was living in New York at the time. And he went for a walk after he finished The Raven. And he encountered a young friend from Kentucky, William Ross Wallace. And he hailed Wallace. And Wallace asked, you know, Poe, how are you doing? And Poe said, great. I am doing great. I have just written the greatest poem ever written. How do you answer that? What do you, what do you say to that? And, 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 and Wallace says, well, well that, that, that's nice. That's nice. And, but you don't understand. I've just finished the greatest poem ever written. And then he, stop, he recites it. This is the first public performance of The Raven. And he recites The Raven on the streets of New York to an audience of one, William Ross Wallace. And he gets done with it. And, and, and Wallace says, well, that is fine. And Poe roars, fine? Fine? That's all you can say is fine? This is the greatest poem ever written. He knew. He knew what he had done. And writers never know what they do. Writers are a bundle of insecurities. Every writer, I think they issue them a copy of, of the, the, the Elements of Style by Strunk and White, a favorite coffee mug, and a raging case of imposter syndrome. I think every writer is just a standard issue. And yet Poe knew. And that's Mozart, folks. That's that rare thing. And that's why he was so did feel like an outsider and a loner, but time is on his side. Time is on his side. And regardless of what killed him, you know, I, I did promise my, my publisher that if I came up with a cause that I believed was logical and compelling and was suspect number one, I would present it as such. You know, do I have a theory as to how Poe died? Yes. Am I going to tell you tonight? No, um, I'm not going to tell you mainly because some of you may want to read the book and that's sort of giving away the ending. But I will also add, um, as I told my, my, my publisher, as convinced as I might be that this is why, what, how Poe died, I am not going to claim that I am able to prove it. That would be irresponsible. And I do not believe I, I can prove it. But I do believe I have a compelling case, but it is all circumstantial. And I don't even believe I want it solved because we would lose so much more if we could definitively solve the mystery of Poe's death. We would lose this wonderful, romantic view we have of how Poe died. And I don't want to lose that. Some mysteries are not meant to be solved. And I think this is one of them. So I will await your questions on the other side, and I will turn the, uh, the podium over to Amy. I wanted to bring out one point. He mentioned how uh, Edgar Allan Poe died in Washington Hospital in Baltimore. We actually have a woman here today who told me that her mother was born in the same hospital room at the Washington Hospital in Baltimore. You want to stand up and, and, uh, and, and admit that? There she is over there, right? The past is not dead yet. All right, Amy. Hi, everyone. Thanks for inviting me. 
So I want to begin by taking a moment to acknowledge that earlier this month on October 7th, we marked the 174th anniversary of Edgar Allan Poe's death. So for over 174 years, we've been enjoying his works. Have any of you been to the graveyard? People? Okay. All right. So uh, the city of Baltimore, they have an Edgar Allan House or Edgar Allan Poe House and Museum. And each year for the past few years, they hold a three-day international Poe Fest to commemorate their famous former resident. And Poe aficionados from the East Coast and beyond make the pilgrimage to Poe's first home with his wife and mother-in-law. And also, of course, this is his final resting place. And there is, some of you may know this, there is a battle over which city gets to claim him. And I, uh, I'm at Frostburg State University, which is in Maryland, so I'm partial to Baltimore having the claim. But also, as Baltimore will say, we have the body. So <laughs> I, think, I think that goes a long way. Um, and so during this festival, they celebrate Poe with music, art, spoken word performances, and recitations of his works. And... You know, tonight we had costumes, and I appreciate those of you who wore your costumes, but at International Poe Fest, the costumes are amazing. The attendees dress for the occasion. They sport their visions, so maybe not quite accurate, their visions of highest early Victorian fashion. Men in top hats and frock coats and waistcoats, women in voluminous dresses, uh, of course, the color palette's fairly limited, mostly black, some red, and there's an occasional deep purple. And the Poe devotees, they enjoy something called the Black Cat Ball. It's the fancy gala during which the Saturday Visitor Awards are announced. And these awards are for Poe adaptations, and also works inspired by Poe. And the contest is named the Saturday Visitor Award because of the fact that that was the periodical where Poe won his first writing contest. Does anyone know what story that was for? Um, most people probably don't even know the story. It's called Manuscript Found in a Bottle. And this festival is so popular that those other Poe sites, like the Poe Cottage in the Bronx, the Poe Museum in Richmond, Virginia, as well as the Edgar Allan Poe uh, National Historic Site in Philadelphia, they send representatives to take part in the grand affair. And I think this is brilliant by the organizers. To get us all out of the event, they end the ball with a toast at the gravesite. <laughs> so we all go to the front. So um, Poe is buried in the Westminster Burial Ground, and um, it formerly was a Presbyterian church. And here are some pictures uh, Mark had mentioned in his presentation that Poe has been moved. Um, so on the left here, yeah, your left. Uh, this is the marker for pretty much where they think he was originally buried. And, um, and you have to go behind the church to see that marker. So if you ever do visit, please go past this large monument at the front gate and go around the building so you can see this tombstone here. Um, and then, of course, we have 
Poe, along with his wife, Virginia, it's all just so perfect, really, when you think about it. Not only does Poe get disinterred, but so does Virginia, because uh, she's buried in the Bronx originally, and then her body is moved to be, to come here and join Poe in 1875. And then um, his mother-in-law, Virginia's mother, also his aunt, if you know a little bit about the biography, um, she lives for many, many years after they die, but she eventually joins them as well. And so we like to say Poe evermore. So I put that there for us. But um, it's not just the cities where Poe has lived that hold these celebrations. Cities, towns, and schools across the United States, including San Francisco, dedicate time in the month of October to honor the most famous and infamous Master of the Macabre. I want to thank George Hammond, the President and Chair for Humanities West for the invitation, Jolene Huey for organizing this session, and Mark Kirchner and Dan back there for technical support and for all of you joining this evening. So thank you, thank you so much for inviting me. So here's what I'm hoping to cover in our time together and I better take a quick look at our time, all right. So um, I'm going to start with the tendency we have, the temptation, we might say, to equate Poe with his mad or grief-stricken narrators and speakers. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about some real-life inspirations for his strange tales and poems. Then we're going to move into what I specialize in, which is uh, the influences of women on Poe. And then you, probably, you may know this, there is a Poe work inspired by the city of San Francisco. So we'll end with that. And then, of course, we'll go to Q&A. So that's our plan. Along the way, I've included some illustrations from famous and not so famous author, uh, sorry, artists. And, um, and I have them credited along the way. And I like this illustration in particular because it, it's going to get us into this mind of Edgar Allan Poe and what we might imagine it to be versus what it might have actually been. And so if you can kind of tell, we've got a skull there, um, and that might be uh, an allusion to the cask of Amontillado. Above the skull is a heart. And so the Telltale Heart, we've got the House of Usher, I believe, right there. And of course, the lovely Raven that also looks like a nice hairdo. So I like that. So we have this continuing controversy in Poe's studies. It's the relationship between Poe, his narrators, and his speakers. And so I'm going to go through where this comes from. but And then I'm going to tell you we shouldn't do it. And then I'm going to do it. So... <laughs> because it's too tempting, right? All right, so go here. All right, so I'm gonna, yeah, you can hiss. I think I heard, did I hear, what did we go? I have, or I boo, I like to boo, because we're going back to Rufus Wilmot Griswold. All right, so um, as Mark mentioned, um, this move to equate Poe with his less desirables, I guess we could say, in his writing, um, narrators and speakers happen very early on, two days after he dies. It is a long obituary, and, it, and as Mark said, a lot of it is just establishing what a terrible person Edgar Allan Poe was. And so I just pulled something out of the middle 
randomly here to just show where this tendency came from to equate Poe with these characters. So I'll just read this short part here. Every genuine author, in a greater or less degree, leaves in his works, whatever their design, traces of his personal character. That's nice and neutral. Okay, we start out okay, but very quickly. While we read the pages of The Fall of the House of Usher or of Mesmeric Revelations, we see in the solemn and stately gloom which invests one and in the subtle metaphysical analysis of both, indications of the idiosyncrasies of what was most remarkable and peculiar in the author's intellectual nature. And then I just pulled out this phrase. Uh, Griswold talks about Poe as shrewd and naturally unamiable. And, um, and, and Griswold did not publish the obituary under his name. He published it under Ludwig. So he wasn't even being upfront. He's a bit of a coward, you might say here. So um, then Dr. Moran was one of many who came to the defense, as Mark also mentioned. And uh, I like that Mark covered the controversy about Dr. Moran. But uh, one thing that he did do was he did try to defend Poe, uh, not only because it helped with his own reputation and got his name out there again, but also because he had made a promise to Poe's mother-in-law, Mariah Clem, to do so. And, um, and what he did was he grabbed testimonies from different people. So I actually pulled this excerpt here. It's a testimony from Poe's employer. Of, um, Poe's first editing job was the Southern Literary Messenger in Richmond, Virginia. So Graham was his boss. And so George Graham says this about Poe. For three or four years, I knew Poe intimately. And for 18 months, I saw him almost daily much of the time writing or conversing at the same desk, knowing all his hopes as well as his hard struggle with adverse fate. Yet he was always the same polished gentleman, the quiet, unobtrusive, thoughtful scholar, the devoted husband, frugal in his personal expenses, punctual and unwearied in his industry, and the soul of honor. And so we get quite a different picture here. But we also might notice the time difference, 1849 to 1885. So these start coming out, there is a lag, these defenses of Poe. Um, and so 26 years later, we get this one. So if we weren't already tempted to equate Poe with his characters, there was this movement that happened in psychology <laughs> in the late 19th century, psychoanalysis. And there was this guy named Sigmund Freud who did a lot with interpretation of dreams, but he also thought that creative writing could be interpreted just like dreams. And uh, I pulled this from his essay, Creative Writers and Daydreaming, published in 1908. Freud writes, a strong experience in the present awakens in the creative writer a memory of an earlier experience usually belonging to his childhood, from which there now proceeds a wish which finds its fulfillment in the creative work. The work itself exhibits elements of the recent provoking occasion as well as of the old memory. And so Freud is basically arguing that we can get to know the creative writer's psyche by 
thinking about how what the creative writer writes is an expression of who they are. And um, a, lot of, a lot of scholars are going to take this up. And so I'm going to give you just one example here. Um, Mark mentioned if you go to school uh, in the US, often you are encouraged to equate Poe with his narrators. And I found this actually, you can see here, off of a lesson plan website. <laughs> And so uh, um, Re Rebecca Ray did this illustration here, and you have the narrator of the Telltale Heart looking very much like Edgar Allan Poe. So I just put a little, th these are my drawings, the red arrow with the questions are me, homicidal Poe and John Allen, foster father, lying in the bed there. So uh, many of you probably know about this relationship between John Allen and Edgar Allan Poe. It wasn't good, um, not at all, actually. So when Edgar went into John Allen's household, uh, he was about three years old when his mom died. And, um, you know, everything was okay when Edgar was pretty young. But um, as Edgar was getting older, John, John Allen never adopted him. So... When you saw, and you'll see it again, the Edgar A. Poe signature, that'll come up on the screen at the end, uh, Poe rarely signed out Alan during his lifetime. And I often tell people, I'll have people bring me books and say, look, it's signed by Edgar Allan Poe. And if I see the Alan is spelled out, I can pretty much, even though I don't authenticate signatures, but you know, I can pretty much know by seeing that they do not have an authentic signature because the relationship was so fraught. And often what was the, the big problem between the two of them was money. So John Allen sent him to University of Virginia, but then didn't give him enough money to cover his books, you know, maybe just the tuition, but not the extras. So then Poe would have to do things, felt like he had to do things like start gambling, and then he wasn't a good gambler, so then he owed money. Um, and, and so it was something that they struggled with throughout their lives, um, this thing about just Poe never having enough funds. And so um, for Poe scholars, we're sort of haunted by this Poe psychobiography that came out in 1933 by a woman named Marie Bonaparte called The Life and Works of Edgar Allan Poe. And um, I just have, it's hard to see, but I did circle one of the chapters. But essentially what she's doing is she's going through all of these people in Poe's life and she's matching up the stories and poems and saying, oh, this story is about this person in Poe's life and this poem is about this person in Poe's life. And there's a chapter called Poe Breaks with John Allen. So she's like, I think there are some things in the works themselves that show us this fraught relationship. And so I just pulled an excerpt from her chapter on the Telltale Heart. And I'm going to quote this part um, that's in quotes. I'm going to quote her quote. And it's from the Telltale Heart. And some of you will recognize the lines. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. And uh, Bonaparte comes in, and the part I underline, and, and says, hmm, when I read this story, I notice it strangely resembles the representation by its opposite of Poe's own relation to his foster father, John Allen. So, right, what she's arguing is, if, 
if it was really about Poe, it would say, of course there is an object with my murder. <laughs> and um, and I do feel strongly, maybe some hatred toward this man, not love. And he has wronged me and he has insulted me and I do need that money. <laughs> right? So And so she was saying, it's kind of interesting. It's like over compensating the other way would be the psychoanalysis argument here. Um, but what I'd like to do is move away from those kinds of interpretations and just talk to you a bit about some of these tales that you've heard of. And you may not know this. You may have thought, wow, he's just got a really great imagination, this guy. And he does. Like Mark said, he's a genius. But um, it's not coming completely out of his mind when he's coming up with ideas for his stories. Often we can trace the ideas to historical and contemporary events in his, in his life. So I'm going to start with this story, The Black Cat. Have any of you read it? Read The Black Cat? Okay. All right. Great. So um, if you haven't, I'm going to spoil it for you. All right. <laughs> so um, Poe scholar John E. Riley tracked down a news story that was reprinted in the Philadelphia Public Ledger. In 1843, uh, Poe was living in Philadelphia. Actually, he moved to Philadelphia a little bit earlier than that. And the newspaper in Philly published a story that had first run in the Greenfield Democrat of Greenfield, Massachusetts on July 16, 1842. And Riley argues that the timing works well to inspire the story. So here's what that story was about. A man who had not lived long on the premises of his new-to-him house decided to begin a renovation. He discovered the skeleton of what was believed to be a young woman behind his cellar wall, and apparently that wall had been constructed decades before. So like Poe's story, the remains showed evidence of a wound to the head, but unlike Poe's story, the woman had died from a gunshot. In Poe's story, it's a different means, so I guess I'll, I'll save some details if you haven't read it. Has anyone read Hot Frog? Okay, yeah, okay, great, all right. So according to one of Poe's esteemed biographers, Arthur Hobson Quinn, quote, the source of this story is usually given as a translation of a tale that merely relates an incident at the court of Charles IV of France. Here's the tale. At the suggestion of a Norman squire, King Charles and five others, including the squire, dress as satyrs with pitch and flax covering their clothes. They are accidentally set on fire. In Poe, the satyrs became apes, the squire becomes an avenging court jester, and the fire is not accidentally set. How about this one? Who's read The Pit and the Pendulum? Okay, more people, great, all right. So this story and the next story, um, this is, these are examples of stories where the uh, event is actually embedded in the text. We didn't have to hunt for it, if you will, right? It's actually alluded to. Um, and I was going to ask, did anybody in here get to go see that screening 
of the Pit and the Pendulum that was done at the Mechanics Institute earlier this week. Even make it? Okay, great. Uh, starring, I believe, Vincent Price. No? Is, is it the one that stars Vincent Price? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm in the 60s, so I figured. Great. All right, so this story, it, it's in the story. Um, it's about the Spanish Inquisition. And we often think of the Spanish Inquisition of something that took place in the medieval times, the Middle Ages, right? But it actually lasted into the early 1800s. And so General LaSalle, who's mentioned in the piece, he's an, oh, I'm sorry, I went back, I went to, sorry, <laughs> there we go. General LaSalle, who's mentioned in the piece, he's an actual person who served in the French military under Napoleon, and he fought in Spain in the early 1800s. So that's a contemporaneous reference in that story. All right, clearly I want to get to this story, so let's go there. How about the premature burial? Has anyone read this story? Okay. All right. So sadly, reports of discovered burials of the living came out in the news during Poe's lifetime. Poe biographer Kenneth Silverman provides some examples of instructions that were published to aid doctors to verify that a patient had actually died. Um, one was called On the Signs of Death, and another was called The Dangers of Premature Burial. And so essentially, these, these pamphlets, these instructions, they were advertised also in the newspapers, so just the general public knew that doctors needed a little help figuring this out. But what we have here from the story itself is a section about a real-life live burial. And um, this was about a woman named Madame Mademoiselle Victorine Lafourcade. If any of you are watching the Netflix series by Mike Flanagan, The Fall of the House of Usher, see a couple people, yeah, one of the children is named after this character in the story. Um, and so basically what happened was uh, Lafourcade dies and um, her lover is distraught and misses her, so he decides to go to the grave to cut off a lock of hair to remember her by, which was common practice at the time. And this is essentially what happens. So that lover, filled with despair and still inflamed by the memory of a profound attachment, he journeys from the capital to the remote province in which the village lies. With the romantic purpose of disinterring the corpse. I think this is one of my favorite lines. The romantic purpose of disinterring the corpse <laughs> and possessing himself of its luxuriant tresses. So he reaches the grave. At midnight, he unearths the coffin, opens it, and is in the act of detaching the hair when he is arrested by the unclosing of the beloved's eyes. In fact, the lady had been buried alive. I think, I don't know how he survived that. I don't know. I could have done it. <laughs> so. um, how about Kings of Amontillado? Let's read that one. All right. Okay, so in this case, in the case of the next set of stories that follow, um, I'm just going to focus on how a character name comes from a real-life person. So E. Bruce Kirkham argues that the name Matrasor may be based on a British colonel who served as the chief engineer of the British forts leading up to and during the American Revolutionary War. 
So of course, you know, um, if you, well, no, maybe not of course, if you don't know this, Edgar Allan Poe's grandfather was, was, was distinguished by the Marquis de Lafayette for his service in the Revolutionary War. So if you're trying to locate a bad guy, a name for a bad guy, going to somebody who fought for the British might be a good place. And so uh, P, or, sorry, Poe scholar T.O. Mabbitt, he adds that Montresor was known in New York as a villain. And Kirkham asked rhetorically, what better name could Poe have found for the mason who walls up Fortunato with such military precision than that of this infamous chief engineer? And then I put these three stories together because they all feature C. Auguste Dupin. Has anyone read The Murders in the Rue Morgue? Okay, great. Uh, how about The Mystery of Marie Roger? Okay, that one's probably the least read of the three. Um, and then the final one's The Purloined Letter. Did I read that? Okay, mm -hmm. great. All right, so C. Auguste Dupin actually is based on the French detective Eugene-Francois Vidoc. Um, and what's great about that French detective is that before becoming a detective, he was a criminal. So he really had some insight into the criminal mind. And so there are some resemblances between that real-life person and C. Auguste Dupin. And also, while I, while I have it up, this um, story in the middle, uh, the illustration here is for the mystery of Marie Roger. And that story is based upon a real-life crime that took place in New York. It was about the death of Mary Rogers. She died on July, well, she was murdered on July 28, 1841, and she was pulled from the Hudson River. And Daniel Stashauer has a book called The Beautiful Cigar Girl, Mary Rogers, Edgar Allan Poe, and the Invention of Murder that does a really nice job talking about that true crime in this story. So in all of these cases, Poe makes the events his own, even though, of course, they're steeped in reality, right? He makes them his own. He's going to add his signature dark touches, and he's going to transform the reports into thrilling tales. All right, so now I'm going to move into something that you may not know so much about, because the women often are not talked about too much. And so we're trying to remedy that. I'm going to say we certain scholars in our field. Um, and so I want to talk about that a little bit. So I'm going to start with our usual suspects. So um, some of this, you know, we start here and some people are, okay, I know about Virginia, right? I know about his mother. So we'll start there and then I'm going to add on to it. So on the left here, we start with Elizabeth Arnold Poe, Poe's mother. She died from tuberculosis on December 8th, 1811. Poe was almost three years old at the time. Then in the middle, we have his foster mother, Frances Keeling Valentine Allen. About 17 years later, she also dies from tuberculosis. So Poe's around 20. And then on the far right, we have his spouse, Virginia Clem Poe. And again, we're about another 17 years later, uh, when Poe's 38, she passes away. So if you've read any of the stories, we sometimes call them the woman tales, Lygia, has anybody read Lygia? Okay, or Morella, okay, The Fall of the House of Usher, M many people know that one, um, Berenice, 
Okay, great. They feature wasting women. So we often talk about how this repetition of women in his life who die from tuberculosis, which was also called consumption, which was this prolonged disease where you watched these women in his life, it was women, um, just wither away. And even when they would die, they would sort of have this coloring to them. And so it was very much like a life and death is the phrase they would use. It was very difficult. And, um, And so because we see these wasting women presented time and time again in the stories, we often think that these women in his life, these real life women in his life, might have inspired some of those characters and characterizations. Um, But now I'm going to move to a different woman. So Jane Stannard is somebody Poe met when he was quite young. He was a teenager still. And uh, she died in 1824 when Poe was just 15 years old. She was the mother of one of his friends. And um, a few years later, he was probably younger than 22, he wrote a poem called To Helen. And uh, it's this poem that uh, you'll definitely recognize some lines on the next slide if you don't already know this poem. And it's sort of his tribute to Jane Standard, like a thank you, right? Um, Because what she did for him was encourage him to pursue creative writing at a time nobody else, particularly John Allen, the foster father, was discouraging him from pursuing creative writing. And so I just want to take a moment to look at two of the three stanzas and talk about how he's doing this tribute to her. All right. So, oh, sorry, let me go back. So, uh, Helen, thy beauty is to me like those Nicene barks of yore that gently o'er a perfumed sea the weary, wayworn wanderer bore to his own native shore. And so why to Helen instead of like to Jane, right? Well, the allusion here is to Helen of Troy. And she, of course, was the most beautiful woman in the world. And she was so beautiful that when Paris kidnapped her from her husband, Menelaus, the Trojan War broke out. And Christopher Marlowe refers to her as the face that launched a thousand ships. So when you're trying to think about how can you celebrate a woman who you thought was beautiful in soul and in body, right? How could you do that? It's fitting that he would pick Helen of Troy. Um, Also, when we see the reference to the Nicene barks of yore, right, those are Greek ships. So again, brings us back to those illusions of that time. Sorry, it's it's a giant green button and I'm still messing it up. (laughs) Sorry about that. This is this is who I am. All right, so we go to the second stanza. On desperate seas long want to roam, thy hyacinth hair, thy classic face, thy naiad airs have brought me home to the beauty of fair Greece and the grandeur of old Rome. And those two lines there at the end of that stanza are pretty famous. And so what he's doing, Poe's doing in this poem, is he's just underscoring over and over again her beauty, right? So um, the hyacinth hair, that's an allusion to the figure of hyacinth, who was another beautiful person in mythology, and then also refers to the hyacinth flower. So it could be that not only is her hair beautiful, she may be wearing a flower crown. To call her face classic is to say it's worthy of a sculpture. 
Her naiad fairs, or naiad airs, excuse me, refer to those fairies that are delicate and beautiful. The beauty of fair Greece just brings back again that reference to Helen of Troy. And the grandeur of old Rome is this reminder that Helen's beauty is awe-inspiring, like the spectacle of Rome, the greatest Western civilization. So the overall message in this poem is that Jane is a very beautiful woman. She's equal to the beauty of Helen of Troy. And um, you know she is his muse. She encouraged Poe to write poetry. So um, those weird yellow things there, that'll make sense in a moment. Um, I want to now go over to some other women, particularly women writers that, in, that influenced Poe. So for many years, scholars did not appreciate just how influential women writers were on Poe's writings. In a sense, the literary women with, with whom Poe had hobnobbed in New York in the mid to late 1840s were, were just kind of presented as his groupies and that they just admired him because of the raven and they wanted to hear him recite that poem at their literary salons, particularly the ones held by Anne Lynch. But by the late 1990s and early 2000s, there were some women post scholars, specifically Noelle Baker, Mary DeJong, and Eliza Richards, who started to reevaluate these relationships. Richards published Gender and the Poetics of Reception in Post Circle in 2004, and this book provided unequivocal proof of Poe's indebtedness to professional women writers. She shifted the discussion of literary women in his life. She demonstrated that they were not minor influences on Poe, but in many cases, role models for him. And one of the consequences of this research is that many 19th century women writers have been recovered, and indeed these authors were, independent of their connections to Poe, formidable writers in their day. Often women writers' interactions with Poe indicated a mutual esteem between poets, so they were professional interactions. However, there were two prominent cases, at least, where Poe and women crossed the line between professionalism and scandal. So one practice in the salons was to exchange what were called Valentine poems. And in 1845, Poe and Francis Sargent Osgood wrote valentines to one another. So part of the practice with these poems wasn't just like, I wrote my poem and then I gave it to the person I wrote about it. No, no, I wrote the poem and I published it in a periodical for the person to read it. And then they would reciprocate by publishing their poem in the periodicals. So um, when he published his poems to Francis Sargent Osgood, he liked to use really mysterious titles, like you see here. Um, 2F dash 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 S, S, O dash 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 D, right? Or uh, to Francis, um, or a Valentine. Um, now, to be fair, sometimes the writers, oftentimes the writers would use pseudonyms when they published their Valentines, but they kind of knew in the writer circles who was whom, and some of the readership could figure it out. The Valentine one, you might have, well, that's clever. That doesn't have her name in the title. 
So when you read a Valentine, he did a sophisticated form of the acrostic where the first letter of the first line was the F, the second letter of the second line was the R, then, and it just goes on to spell out her entire name using that pattern, which was kind of fun, right? You could, it had a little mystery in it and some of the, it was a puzzle. Poe loved puzzles. He loved cryptograms and puzzles and riddles. So um, this was kind of the thing that they did. So yes, it was fun. It was a game. They were both married at the time. So the flirtation ended up concerning some of her, her nickname was Fanny, Francis's friends. And um, a scene occurred. Put up some of our pictures here so we get a sense of who the players were. So um, Anne Lynch is in our top right corner. She's the one that holds the salons where she would encourage the poets to write the Valentines and then they would publish those poems. Elizabeth Ellett and uh, Margaret Fuller, the two on the left here. We're going to talk about them in just a moment. They get involved in our scandal. And then here we have at the bottom right, Francis Sargent Osgood, the object of affection. So... The friends of Fanny got a little worried, particularly these two on the left. And so Elizabeth Ellett and Margaret Fuller showed up at Poe's house at his doorstep, and they demanded that Poe return letters that Osgood had sent to him. And this was quite humiliating. And this um, whole scandal created a problem for him in the New York literary salons. So you would think he would learn, but not our guy Poe. So this is a picture of Sarah Helen Whitman. So the humiliation with Osgood did not deter him from engaging in similar behaviors with Sarah Helen Whitman. A couple of years after, Sarah Helen Whitman, I mean, she, in all fairness, she starts it, okay? But a couple years later, she composed a Valentine to Poe and of all places, read it, premiered it at Ann Lynch's salon. Of course, Poe was not there, but he did hear about it. And so he decided, now he was a recent widower, so he decided he would publish a response to her. And guess what he titled it? You know, so, I mean, this time I do want to go, but a little cagier, because there was, you know, it's the middle name, so, um, to Helen. And, um, and not nicely in this case, it was an original poem because Poe was not above just sticking a different woman's name on a previous poem he had written. <laughs> so in this case, at least he wrote an original work to her. And uh, yes, and but what happened was this exchange actually led to them meeting in person, and then they had a short-lived but very dramatic relationship that included a suicide attempt by Poe and a broken engagement. So uh, what I'd like to do is wrap up with the work that I've been doing recently uh, in relation to Poe and women. And so as many of you saw out there, I have this edited collection that I co-edited with Travis Montgomery, and it's called Poe and Women Recognition and Revision. And what it does is it's looking at how women are involved in Poe's legacy throughout time. And uh, the first essay in the collection does a really nice job. It's by Sandy Tomp. It does a really nice job looking at how after 
some of the men, particularly Griswold, but others, after they are putting on the record their thoughts about Poe, talking about his biography with their own spin on it, she comes in and looks at just how the women biographers had talked about Poe. And, and you can see right away the first person there is Sarah, Sarah Helen Whitman in 1860. She publishes Edgar Allan Poe and his critics. So even though they did have a tumultuous relationship, she sort of um, came to peace with it, right, after their engagement broke up. And then um, also around that same time, same time, another contemporary writer, Elizabeth Oak Smith, she wrote Edgar A. Poe, as well as autobiographic notes, Edgar Allan Poe. And Mary Gove Nichols, Susan Archer Weiss, they all knew him. Uh, you know, they lived much longer, but they knew him. And so they wrote some reminiscences, some memories, and also some official biographies. And Mary E. Phillips comes in as well, until we get to Marie Bonaparte with her psychobiography, <laughs> The Life and Works of Edgar Allan Poe. And essentially what Tomk is arguing is how the, not only did the relationships with women inspire much of his work, but that Writers such as Sarah Helen Whitman and Marie Bonaparte challenged the Griswoldian image of Poe. He painted Poe as a figure who lacked self-control and lacked pecuniary prowess. And these lacks that he had, what he lacked in, suggested moral corruption. So these women come in, they reject these bourgeois manhood ideals and instead, what they do, they're going to pen some sympathetic accounts of Poe's life. They present Poe as a figure molded and influenced by women. Instead of looking at him as a failed adult man, like, uh, like Griswold presented him, the Poe imagined by them was as a true genius. He was a tormented writer who transformed, transformed personal trauma into timeless art as well as a model for women writers whose intellectual and professional ambitions made them social outsiders. And then here I'll just talk a little bit about what the book covers, because we didn't want to just cover contemporary writers. We were, uh, we were looking at pop culture as well and scholars. And so... Um, the second chapter is about a woman that was a contemporary of Poe's, Lydia Maria Child. She was a very famous writer in, in their time together. And this chapter talks about how her writings seem to have influenced some of Poe's philosophical positions. The next two chapters are on women scholars of Poe. Um, I wrote the one that focuses on the U.S., but Clara Patino wrote a chapter about how women scholars throughout the world are reshaping Poe's legacy, particularly in Japan and Brazil um, and France and a couple other countries. Uh, Alexandra Ruber, so we move into revision. This is where we move into pop culture. She looked at three recent film adaptations, one of Morella, one of The Black Cat, and one of Berenice, and looks at how those directors have reimagined the, those women characters as maybe a little bit more powerful or more in control than we think of when we first read the stories. Then what I love, we have now um, the comics books artists coming up, the comic books artists. Uh, John Martin talks about Caitlin Kiernan, Denise Despero, Leah Moore, Alice Duke, 
Don Brown, Wendy Peeney, and Rachel Pollack. And what a lot of these writers are doing is they're going in and they're finding gaps in the texts where the women might be able to have a voice, and they're finally giving those women characters voice. And then um, Kevin Knott goes to the female pulp writers. So a lot of people think about like H.P. Lovecraft later in the 20th century influencing Poe, but Poe influenced many writers in the weird magazines and other um, genre-specific magazines. So he looks at writers like Meredith Davis, Gray Lespina, Mona Farnsworth, Jane Rice, and Elizabeth Councilman. And then uh, some of you are probably familiar with the novel Mexican Gothic. Has anybody read that book? Okay. Um, so in Anderson's chapter, what she does is she's really interested in the haunted house trope, which is definitely featured in the fall of the House of Usher. And she looks at Sylvia Moreno Garcia's Mexican Gothic, as well as Sherry Priest's The Family Plot and Sarah Waters' The Little Stranger. And then uh, the book actually ends with the inspiration for it, which was an essay about a scholar named Maureen Cobb Mabbitt. So what Travis Montgomery does in this afterward is he elucidates the major role that she had on our authoritative collected works of Edgar Allan Poe. So when I say are that, that the Poe scholars use, um, the, it came out in three volumes. The first volume appeared while, while her husband, Thomas, was still living, but then he passed away, and there were still two more volumes to come. And when they were published, they, you know, of course, proudly sported T.O. Mabbitt's name, the husband, but she actually was the one who finished them, and she hadn't gotten that credit. She was sort of a footnote in that history, so we wanted to make sure people knew about that. And so, yeah, basically what this whole collection is doing is just making sure that we acknowledge the role that women have had in continuing his legacy. And I think arguably without that side of recovering his image that we saw in that first chapter with all those biographers, uh, we might have a very different sense of who Edgar Allan Poe is today and maybe not even read him as much. Although, as Mark said, the French symbolists were big advocates for him. So, all right. So what I'd like to do is to conclude with one of the last poems Poe wrote, and it relates to an historical event that took place in 1849, about a year after the discovery of gold at Sutter's Mill, and it's called El Dorado. And it may be a nod to the county where Sutter's Mill was located, and it's about the gold rush and the flocking of thousands of people to San Francisco and the surrounding area to seek their fortune. So we're going to bring Mark back. And he's agreed to recite the poem for us, because as he mentioned, he's the performer of the two of us. Um, and I will just say, because I cited some other biographers, that of course Mark is the most recent Poe biographer, and um, it's not easy to be a Poe biographer, because there are about 500 of us waiting to pounce when anybody writes a biography on Poe. And what Mark does is phenomenal because he 
the way he plays with the timeline in his book was just amazing to me as a scholar. But also, he did a very brave thing, which is he interviewed many of us, many of the scholars, and then put our words into the book, and know, and he knew we were going to then read the book, right? And I think that was very brave. So he's going to recite the poem for us that you can see on either side. And as he recites it, I just want us to keep in mind something that Kenneth Silverman, an earlier Poe biographer, talks about, and that's the motif of the shadow. So as you listen, I just want you to think about this. this. Silverman says, prominently set at the turning point of each stanza, the word first means, so the word shadow, first means simply the lack of sunshine, then gloom, then a ghost, And finally, the pilgrim shadow imparts what Poe had always known about El Dorado, that the way to the golden treasure lies through the valley of death. All right, so Mark, please. Gaily bedight, a gallant knight, in sunshine and in shadow, had journeyed along singing a song in search of El Dorado. But he grew old, this knight so bold, And o'er his heart a shadow fell, as he found no spot of ground that looked like El Dorado. And as his strength failed him at length, he met a pilgrim shadow. Shadow, said he, where can it be, this land of El Dorado? Over the mountains of the moon. Down the valley of the shadow, ride, boldly ride, the shade replied, if you seek for El Dorado. Thank you. First big questions come about the villain, Rufus Griswold. One question was, what was Griswold's beef? Uh, <laughs> and and another, another related question was, was he just projecting his personality onto Poe? Mm. Amy, you want to take that? <laughs> I can. Start. I don't mind. I, I, I can start. We probably maybe we'll have different theories on that because we're yeah. just so so. Call me Marie Bonaparte. I will just do some psychoanalysis, I guess. Um, I've often thought, and and again, pop culture. If anyone's had the chance to see the Drunk History episode where there's Poe and Griswold, there is one of those episodes out there. But I think um, it was just the Griswold. So Griswold was a famous anthologist of his day, which means that he was collecting and deciding on who would be considered the best poets of the time. And so he had a collection called The Poets and Poetry of America and many other of these anthologies. And he did include Poe in one of them, but he didn't include very many of Poe's poems. And um, I think that for me anyway, I think the real problem between Poe and Griswold was that Griswold wanted to be a famous writer, but he was not nearly as good as Poe. Mm-hmm. And so it was just sort of this, uh, and I think, Mark, you used the word envious or, or something like that in their relationship, but it wasn't necessarily something Poe was aware of, as, mm-hmm. as we heard, because then Poe made him the literary executor. So I think it was just really that simple. He just didn't feel very, he wasn't as good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It had to be bad. There has to be a certain um, Amadeus Salieri uh, mm-hmm. 
aspect to this because there's Poe and, and Griswold had to know he was a better poet. He was a better arbiter of literary tastes. And Griswold certainly viewed himself as the arbiter mm. of American literary tastes, certainly as far as poetry was concerned. And I think he disapproved of Poe. Me. You know, Griswold's solidly in the, the, that school that believes that all literature should have uplift, mm -hmm. that there should be. This is the era of Longfellow and the poets of the hearth. And the, the writing is supposed to. This is what leads to the Chautauqua movement in America. And that every and that's not good for Edgar Allan Poe, because Poe doesn't believe in morals, doesn't believe in having it neatly wrapped up with. And the moral of the story is. And mm -hmm. I also think Griswold didn't approve of Poe. Mm -hmm. Poe comes into his own really in the 20th century. We had to catch up to Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. And the 20th century with its horrors of the First World War and the Depression and the Second World War and the atomic bomb and the arms race, that's where really Poe becomes quite a voice. And we 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 kind of had to catch up to the fact that he's telling us some things about us that we we didn't really weren't ready to hear at that moment of the Chautauqua movement. And I think Griswold kind of thought in some ways he was morally superior uh, mm. to Poe. So I think all of that fed uh, his dislike of Poe. He also produced the obituary too quickly, a little like a text that you sent out when you're, when you're still angry and you <laughs> want to get it back, but it's too late. It reminds me of the, the uh, obituary that one of the literary critics wrote about Joseph Heller when he died. And he said, that the author of Catch-22 in the New York Times, he said, he only had one good novel. The other novels aren't so good. And I thought, well, you yeah. know, you didn't obviously write Catch-22 yourself, did you? Right. <laughs> I think there's something to that, yeah. All right. Um, there's a question for Amy. You read Mrs. Poe. What did you think of that book? Is there... Oh, yeah. So that's... <laughs> yeah, so I think, I think it's interesting when you're reading any of these books that um, you kind of have to go in just like with an open mind, right? And, and mm -hmm. go along for the ride. So that's what I would just say, go in for the ride. And and it's why I love, I love how pop culture responds to Poe and how, and just anybody, how they're responding to Poe. But it's just kind of like, let me just see what your way in is and, and I'll go from there. So that's, I would recommend it, yeah. Here's an interesting question about, about how you said about pop culture and how it mm -hmm. responds. Um, they had read something about authors whose uh, legacy is tightly controlled by some group of people and how that usually ends up hurting them more than mm -hmm. helping them. Is, is anything like that happened with Poe? I mean, I know that the, yeah. So why, why don't we talk about that a little bit? Right. Uh, I guess yeah. I'll start there. And then if you want to say how you feel about having talked to some of the scholars, Mark, because I am one of the scholars, so I'm kind of in that group, right? Um, so so there is a tension between pop culture and the post-scholars. And like I said, I'm really open to it because I think without that side, we wouldn't have the, <laughs> the popularity, of course, with this author. But there is a, if you had just post-scholars in this room with the what we talked about tonight, I mean, to even bring up anything about alcohol dependence, um, the suicide attempt, the fact that I talked a little bit about, you know, let's equate him for a moment with some of his, his narrators, that is really frowned upon in our circles. And so we, we try to, 
uh, correct the biographical record as best we can, but sometimes I think we go too far as, a, as scholars on something we really don't know. We don't really know how much she was drinking day to day. We can argue that if someone was alcohol dependent to the extent he's often portrayed that he probably couldn't be as prolific. Mm. You know, we can make that case, but um, it's, we, we, we do want to present him as a hard worker. He was a hard worker, right? Um, and he cared immensely about supporting his mother-in-law and his wife. Um, and so those are things we want to stress as scholars when we're talking biography. Mark, do you want to add something to that? No, you know, I, I think uh, I, I can't remember the name of the British writer who said that all American literature comes from those two 19th century scarecrows, Edgar Allan Poe and Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. It's a it's an overstatement. And it's mm -hmm. it's 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 it really is goes way too far. But there is an aspect of the fact that they are the, these these kind of two guys who um, they've almost become so big that there there's nobody can own them. No, you know, as much as you might want to say, I control this. There are certain authors that there is tight control. Uh, academically or otherwise over their legacies and such. And Poe is and Twain are just so big. They're like, you know, great white whales of American literature. <laughs> Nobody can own them. Nobody can 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 say, say and, and and it's great. It's wonderful. You get these. It allowed me to go to, as Amy said, to go to all these wonderful Poe scholars who have devoted uh, their entire careers to studying minute aspects of, of Poe's life and his writing and his career or his association with a city or Southern identity or women, his, uh, the influence of women on his life. It, 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 it really has become so specialized that I really think it's one, I think it's one of the best things about Poe research. Um, I, I, I found the, the Poe scholarship very welcoming uh, extraordinary. And I was an outsider. I am, I'm sort of like Poe in that sense of being an outsider is that I, I wrote a popular biography. I make no, no bones about that. I, I, you know, I'm, uh, this is a working writer's biography of a working writer. Mm -hmm. And, um, I went to these scholars as my witnesses, you know, as, as, as I was 43 years a journalist, what do journalists do when they write a story, they go and interview people. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. And, um, uh, I didn't think it was brave. I thought it was smart because, you know, how could you not, you know, avail yourself of this amazing expertise on the on, on every little aspect of Poe's life and career? Um, I thought I think I would have been foolish not to do that. Well, we have a very detailed question here about that. The last poem, El Dorado, um, is about San Francisco and the gold rush, which started in 1849, but. Uh, I said I thought that that's the year that that uh, Poe died. So uh, yes, is 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 that a uh, is there an overlap? Did you write it in the last week of his life or <laughs> no? No, he wrote it so, earlier in the year. Yeah, it, yeah. He by forty-eight, I think the gold, the word was out. Then the, the rush comes <laughs> when he's dying. So there's the words out before he's dead, and so he is, insp yeah, inspired to write the poem. But yeah, we think of forty-nine because that's when everyone, I guess, is getting here. But you have to think, right? The word is going out the year before, so he's aware of the discovery of gold. Mm -hmm. So the yeah. scholar. Yeah. Scholars defeat the, the, the detailed question once again. Yes, we're ready for you. Bring it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. I was just thinking when Mark was answering that previous question, I think when 
uh, Mark interviewed me and probably all of us, he had said, you know, what do you think he died of? And I know, I think I probably said what I usually say, it's not rabies, <laughs> um, you know, because you mentioned there are so many theories. Yeah, but sorry to tag back to that one, <laughs> had that memory, yeah. You, you know, and, and I would point out about El Dorado, there's actually a companion piece to it. There's a letter that Poe write about the same time when the gold rush was on. Mm -hmm. And he wrote to a friend, uh, and this, this is a direct quote, talking of gold and temptations. It, and and Poe concludes in this letter that for a writer, the true riches were love, fame, the dominion of intellect, the consciousness of power, the thrilling sense of beauty, the free air of heaven, exercise of mind and body with the physical and moral health that result. If this is what a writer cares for, why should he go to California? <laughs> so, I mean, this is, the, this is him looking at everybody going there and saying, you know, this is, this is where, uh, this hundred is years, path to Elder. Yeah. A hundred years later, he would have come here for the beat generation. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's fresh true. air and all that, but, but not, not, not for the gold. I think okay. Twain is over here, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, Twain is <laughs> got a huge. Don't. We'll be here the rest of the night if we start on yeah. Twain. <laughs> you don't want to do that. <laughs> All right. So here's another uh, comment. Poe was influenced by women, yes, but does he deserve his reputation as a philanderer and one who fell in and out of love on a regular basis? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would say yes, yeah. Um, there is, a, yeah. There, there, there are is. more women we could talk about, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, sorry, Mark, go ahead. No, no, go, no, you go ahead, Amy. This is your, this is your specialty. Go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, so we didn't talk about Elmira Royster Shelton as the woman he's engaged to at the time he dies, which was his childhood sweetheart. And so, um, yeah, when he was a child in Richmond, he had a crush on Elmira, and you know, had hoped to take that further but her family said no way um and you know he, the, and they married her off pretty quickly mm -hmm. but then she was widowed and uh when she um when they reunited shortly after he broke off the engagement with Sarah Helen Whitman, who also had quite a bit of money, at least compared to Poe. I don't want to say he didn't have feelings for these women, but he tended to find that he had feelings for some women that had some means. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so he was engaged to Elmira um, Royster Shelton. And one of the theories of his death is that her brothers got a hold of him. So, yeah. Do you want to add yeah, to that, Mark? But, but I would, I'd, I'd also add that um, after Virginia dies in 1847, mm -hmm. Uh, it is a silly period of Poe's life because I, I think he panics. I think he goes into an all-out panic mode because with his wife and, and his mother-in-law, he sort of finds what he's always been looking for, which is this kind of family unit that totally accepts him. He gets this unconditional love. Uh, he's got a mother figure, finally, in, in Mariah Clem, and he has a, uh, a wife who adores him. And when she dies, I think he's looking desperately to replace Virginia. And he's bouncing from one way. Sometimes he's, he's courting two women at the same time. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we haven't even mentioned Annie Rich. No. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, and, and, and that seems to be the woman of his, of his true heart at the end. I think if Annie, Annie's married, and I think if Annie were free, uh, 
even as he's engaged to Elmira, he would have gone for Annie. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is, it, 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 there's, it, there's a, a desperate quality mm-hmm. to those years, to those, those last few years. And it certainly leads him into some pretty caddish behavior. Now yeah. that. So alcohol dependence is verboten, but but uh, women dependence isn't. Well, he's mixing them up, actually, because <laughs> he's supposed to take a temperance pledge to marry Sarah Helen Whitman. He breaks that <laughs> pledge publicly. <laughs> and so, yeah, there's a lot happening. Um, and I think, yeah, you're right. There's a desperation mark. There's a lot of bouncing around. Um, and by now, he's he's quite famous because The Raven came out in 80, 1845. So he's known and, he's, and he cultivates this figure of himself, of this dark kind of handsome hero type, right? Um, in a manner like Lord Byron, who he admired, right? And... Um, and so he's he's cultivating this image, um, and 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 women are attracted to him, and, and he's really making a lot of it. So, well, uh, we'll finish with this one question okay. since we want to end with a scandal. Okay, um, <laughs> and that is, I didn't know that he married his cousin. Oh, um, oh. what was that all about? <laughs> is, is this your question, no. George? <laughs> I no, like... I, I knew that he married his cousin. Uh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll start. Um, so the scandal in his day was not marrying his first cousin. The state of Maryland still does not have a law prohibiting that you could marry your first cousin. Yeah, today even. Mm-hmm. Many states don't still no. have that law on the books. The scandal was her age. He was 27 years old and she was uh, 13 years old at the time. And they had to change on the marriage license. They had to change her age to 21. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was the scandal. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Good question. Yeah. So. And, oh, but oh, but the mother, obviously, the aunt, obviously. Yeah, she, and, she was and there. Just moved so, in. yeah, there are some letters about the, there, there was a, speaking of what Mark said about he's longing for this stable home and to have like this mother figure. Um, what's about to happen is one of Poe's cousins, different cousin, of course, <laughs> uh, Nielsen Poe is uh, going to send Virginia to school, to boarding school. And um, Poe's living with Mariah and Virginia at that time. And he sees the threat to this family he's created. And he writes a letter to Muddy, that was his nickname for Mariah, saying, please, I want to marry her. I love her. Please, I will, essentially, I will kill myself. Mm-hmm. I cannot live without her. And now yeah, they agree to the marriage. Do you want to add to that, Mark? Any details? Well, you know, the nature of the Poe's marriage is, is, is also a subject of endless debate among uh, Poe biographers and scholars. And the truth is, we don't know. It's a closed door. We've never been allowed to peek into the, the Poe's bedroom. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what the nature of the marriage was. What we do know was they were devoted to each other. Yes. We do know that for as long as it lasts, um, this is a very happy household. Um, he, he, is, he is secure in this. And his aunt, who becomes his mother-in-law, approves of this mm-hmm. and is there with them, is part of the household the whole time. He becomes her uh, instructor. He teaches her. He gives her music lessons. He gives her voice lessons. He instructs her in mathematics. He, um, he's, he's almost like an older brother, father, husband. You know, endle- we can endlessly speculate about this, uh, 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 about the nature of the marriage and 
whether it was consummated, whether it wasn't, whether it was a sexual relation, we don't know. We, you know, it's like a lot of things about Poe. We take our best guess. And, you know, a lot of things we assume, uh, even though there is a lack of evidence. Um, and anybody who writes a biography of any figure is eventually going to use the words probably, undoubtedly. You, 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 and you, you rely on those words to fill in gaps. With Poe, we're using those words all the time because there are large aspects. It's not a very well-documented life. There's whole parts of Poe's life when we have no idea what he's doing. The early 1830s when he's in Baltimore and we don't know if he's working or where he's working or, you know, it's, it's days and days, which we have no idea what he's doing. So it's, it, it's an intriguing life in a lot of ways because of what we don't know. And that's why, you know, the title of my book is The Mystery of Mysteries. It can extend to just about every aspect of Poe's personality in life. Did he ever have a regular job of some kind, or did he always? Oh, yeah. sure. I yes, mean, he, he held. It, yeah, he was an editor at the, uh, the the Southern Literary Messenger, and then at Graham's in Baltimore. He was working like like any. It's like the the, the alcohol question, and I don't want to get into it. But there are unquestionably these long moment periods of sobriety when he's not drinking, mm -hmm. and he's producing a lot of copy, and it's documented that he's not drinking during during this period. Mm -hmm. And plus, we would know if he was drinking because alcohol had a devastating effect on his system. It just, yeah. it was not just a morning hangover for Mr. Poe. Mm -hmm. It took days for him to get over drinking. It, it, it had a really profound effect on his system. So, um, you know, the, these long periods where he's very productive, he's very versatile. And, you know, one of the things that I love about Poe is that, um, and something that Amy touched on, which is, you know, Vincent Price, who became you know, one of the leading interpreters of, of Poe, once said, and he was not talking about Poe when he said it, but he said, but, but Vincent Price once said that the person who limits his interests limits his life. Mm -hmm. That is a great description of Edgar Allan Poe. And Amy went through all of the places where he got story ideas and from mm -hmm. and what were the inspirations for them. And that should not surprise anybody who has studied Edgar Allan Poe's life. The man was interested in everything. The man read about everything. He was, he was interested in languages, rocks, flowers, expeditions, geography. He had this acquisitive mind, which just worked. And that's where a lot of the inspirations for the stories came from. And that's, you know, he had a true writer's mentality that way. Well, First of all, thank you very much, both of you. And uh, I have one last question uh, for, for Amy to, to say, uh, to answer. Um, is there any other detail? You both have done a great job of, of giving us a much better idea about who Edgar Allan Poe is. Is there any other detail you've come across in all your years that you think very few people know about Edgar Allan Poe that you think is not just a guess? Hmm. I mean, there's, because Mark covered quite a bit. I think... I think for me, it's the just that he's funny. Mm -hmm. He's so funny, and people just don't know it, and it's right in front of us, like Mark mentioned in so many of the stories. And uh, I just, I just love that about him. You know, of course, I'm a scholar, so I go right back to the works, not to the biography. But, um, uh, but yeah, I think for for like his for his biography, a detail about his life that I find really touching because often the family was so impoverished. Um, 
that when his wife was very ill when they were in the Bronx, that he actually, you know, they didn't have much heat. They're in New York and he didn't have they didn't have enough blankets and he had his coat and he used his coat to try to keep her warm. Mm -hmm. And it just, just speaks volumes to how much he loved her and cared about her. So when we're wondering about that relationship between them and it is, there are a lot of questions there. Uh, there's no doubt just what a devoted husband he was to her. So, yeah. yeah. Well, you, this, ties it back to uh, your other American writer because uh, mm. Mark Twain said the secret source of humor is suffering, right? Right. Mm. Right. And so right. you mentioned that all of these horror writers all had a great sense of humor. Um, and, That's right. Yeah. That's right. And every humorist has a dark side. Yeah. 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 And now, now we thought we just had a writer with a dark side that now has a sense of humor. I think that's a yes. wonderful way to balance that a little bit. So thank you very much for coming and thank Amy and Mark. Our next Humanities West program is in January and it's on Shakespeare. It's the 400th anniversary of his first folio. Um, and we have uh, two, two uh, speakers coming in for that. So we'll see you Great. again then. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Yeah, thank Thanks, you. Mark. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.